This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday, and I think today we will be doing questions. So <laughs> We must. We without, must. Uh, without further ado, let's begin. We're doing neurology questions this week. That's Daphna, correct. <laughs> I'm going to ask you question 42. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Universal screening of all newborns for permanent congenital hearing loss can identify affected infants early, leading to timely intervention and improved speech and language outcomes. Two screening methods used in the newborn period are the automated brainstem response, the ABR, and the autoacoustic emission, OAE, screening tests. Which of the following statements about the ABR and the OAE screening test is true? All right, so we're looking for the true statement. First choice is that the ABR and the OAE take the same amount of time to perform. Choice B, the ABR can be used to screen infants at younger gestational ages than the OAE. By the way, if you forgot, the OAE is the one we usually do like in, in well, newborns. The ABR is usually the one that's being done in the newborn nursery, in the, in the NICU. The ABR can, choice C, the ABR can detect all types of hearing loss, while OAE cannot. The A, choice D, the ABR criteria for hearing loss has lower decibel threshold than the OAE. And then finally, the ABR measures the acoustic feedback from the cochlea in response to an auditory stimulus, and the OAE measures brain waves generated in response to an auditory stimulus. Again, we are looking for the statement in there that is true. I think you're muted. Sorry. No worries. Okay. Um, gosh, I wrote, I mean, I really struggled. I learned so much about the hearing tests when I was studying. Um, which of the screening tests is true? I don't remember which one, but one of them is definitely longer than the others. <laughs> um, there's one question E the ABR measures the acoustic feedback. OAE measures brainwaves. That's the opposite. That's the opposite. That's That's definitely true. wrong. And I mean, uh. it's the brainstem response. So I say brainstem, brainwaves, and the autoacoustic makes sense that you're hearing yeah. that acoustic feedback. But I think that's why C is true because um, C means like, does the brain get the signal or not and the acoustic emissions are really only for certain types of um hearing loss so i'm going to say that c is true i'm going to say that c is true i don't know if b is true or false and the abr criteria for hearing loss is a lower threshold than the oae that is also true no that is no, false. If, if you said false. it's true, you're just, yeah. just, just right. <laughs> conflicting. Uh, I'm conflicting. Hold on. The ABR for hearing loss is a lower decibel, a lower threshold. So that's false. 
Um, they use the same decibels. That's right. Right. Okay. So I'm going to stick with my answer choice. What did C. I say? C. You said C. Yeah. Okay. So you said the ABR can detect all types of hearing loss mm-hmm. while the OAE cannot. So um, yeah, so that is the correct answer. Both the ABR and the OAE screening tests are both acceptable for screening hearing in newborn. The ABR, as you mentioned, measures brain waves generated in response to an auditory stimulus. Um, and the OAE is just the acoustic feedback from the cochlea in response to an auditory stimulus. So they have like these little earmuffs and the earmuffs are supposed to detect uh, the feedback from the cochlea. Now, both tests use the same cutoff to figure out whether a baby has hearing deficits. And that is a cutoff of 35 decibels. Um, and that cutoff is what's used to determine uh, uh, whether the test is abnormal or not. That's a good fact to know. 35. 35 decibels. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of how early we can do these tests, both of them can can be done uh, starting at the same gestational age. And the gestational age we're talking about is 34 weeks. So an ABR and an OAE can both be done as early as 34 weeks. The ABR, because of the nature of the test, takes longer to perform than the OAE. But the advantage of the ABR is that it can detect all types of hearing loss, right? Um, including auditory dyssynchrony Mm -hmm. because the um, OAE, right? You remember, it's just a wave and it's Mm -hmm. waiting for the feedback from the cochlea. So it's it's really not going to be very good at looking at for sensory neural hearing Mm -hmm. loss. It's more conductive type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, can the weight, can the emission actually get to and from? So the emission gets to the cochlea, but then what? Like, can the cochlea then do its job and actually tell the brain, hey, that's that's a sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, so these are the differences which confirms the answer that you said, um, that, uh, which, is, which is true, that the ABR can detect all types of hearing loss while OAE really cannot. Now, some statistics between one and three, uh, between one to three in 1,000 infants are born with hearing loss in the US every year. And when we're talking about hearing loss, there are four main types of hearing loss. We talked about conductive, which is that the sound wave isn't being interrupted from the external auditory canal to uh, the inner ear. You have a second type of hearing loss, sensory neural, which means that uh, there's abnormal development of the inner ear structure so that they don't communicate well with the brain. There's auditory dyssynchrony, which is the abnormal processing of the auditory signal from the cochlea to the auditory nerve. Um, And finally, there's central hearing loss, which is the abnormal process of auditory input by the brain. Okay. You're muted. You're yeah, up, you got, but you're muted. No, yeah. You got you got to know facts about the, the hearing tests, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, I love this next question. I, learned a, I remember this question. I learned a lot. Neurology question 43. Uh, children born with extremely low birth weight are at increased risk for learning disabilities, particularly the nonverbal and math-related disabilities. Which of the following statements about learning disabilities as a whole is true? An individual, is it A, an individual with a diagnosed learning disability by definition also has subnormal intelligence? B. Learning disabilities are diagnosed by scoring greater than or equal to one standard deviation below the mean on standardized achievement tests. C, poor academic achievement is always a result of learning disabilities. D, the most common type of learning disability in the United States is in math. E, 
there are effective school-based interventions for nonverbal learning disabilities? That's that's a very high yield question, I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some things in there that you, clearly you, you say are wrong, right? So, for choice A that you mentioned that somebody with a diagnosed learning disability is by definition sub intelligent, clearly is just uh, not correct. So that that goes out. Right. Um, the other answer choice that to me is very clearly wrong is poor academic achievement is always the result of learning disability. Again, using the word always, never, mm-hmm. that's already suspicious. Um, no, so that's not always the case. So then you're left with B, D, and E. Uh, the first one is learning disabilities are diagnosed by scoring greater than one, than or equal to one standard deviation below the mean on a standard achievement test. That is correct, which mm-hmm. is why um, most of the tests that we use uh, have a mean of about 100, and one standard deviation is about 15. So if you score below 85, you're you're considered to to have uh, some form of disability. Um, so I think that's correct. Just making sure that we're not missing anything else. The most common type of learning disability in the U.S. is in math. No, it's verbal. It's all sorts. There's multiple uh, things that we could talk about, but it's definitely not math. It's more language and verbal expression. And then finally, E, there are effective school-based interventions for nonverbal learning disabilities. Clearly not. The research is all over the place for that. And if there was one, we would know about it. So um, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think that is correct. And again, there are effective school-based interventions for nonverbal learning disability. So if there was, I would be really living under a rock and we would have never heard of these amazing mm-hmm. effective school-based interventions that allow nonverbal patients to just thrive. No, sadly enough. So, so B. Uh, that is the correct answer. So learning dis- disabilities can actually be defined in two ways. So this was one of them, scoring greater than or equal to one standard deviation below the mean on standardized achievement test. And I think you did a great job of uh, discussing um, uh, what that looks like in, in, in real life. And the second, and I think this is really important, having a one standard deviation or greater discrepancy between IQ and achievement as measured by psychometric testing. What that means is like, based on your IQ, we would anticipate that you'd have this level of achievement, but you don't. And I think that already shows you why that other answer choice is false. Not all individuals with learning disabilities have low IQs. Um and and that's why you may have a very high IQ, but you're not meeting the anticipated achievement for that IQ level. Though subnormal intelligence is associated with other learning problems and poor educational attainment. Most children in the general population in the United States with diagnosed learning disabilities have verbal disabilities, language type disabilities. However, the low birth weight population has a disproportionate risk of nonverbal math related disabilities. So I think that's what they meant by nonverbal. Not a patient is nonverbal, but the, the 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 problem is in math versus language. Now, this is unfortunate because at this time there are few effective interventions offered in schools. Okay. Now, okay. No, 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 no. I know I was muted. I know. Don't. I'm not <laughs> falling for this one. All right. Um, you're next. We're going to do question 44. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's the right one. That's the follow-up one. Daphne, you are asked to consult with a family expecting to deliver. That's not fair. That's that's your job. Uh, 
you are asked to consult with a family expecting to deliver a 24 weeks gestation as a result of unstoppable preterm labor. The anxious parents ask about the long-term prognosis of their infant. Which of the following is the most accurate statement about the long-term outcomes for infant born at 24 weeks of gestation? Choice A. Advances in NICU care, including gentle ventilation, reduced oxygen exposure, have made sensory impairment almost unheard of today. Choice B. Early intervention programs have been shown to reduce functional limitations and improve academic achievement outcomes among extremely preterm infants. Choice C. It is impossible to answer this question, as mortality for this gestational age is so high that long-term outcomes are not readily known. Choice D, long-term outcomes depend in part on the sex of the infant, the birth weight, and the exposure to antenatal steroids. Last one, choice D, some grade of static encephalopathy, i.e. CP, um, is anticipated in close to 60% of children born at 24 weeks gestation. Daphna, which one is the most accurate statement? Um, That is... This is a very good question, I think, um, and I think one that people can take back to their units with them. But let's go through them, okay? I think it also speaks to how much the community has changed even since this book was written, <laughs> because they're asking about 24 weeks gestation uh, infants. And as, for as example, if it's like the 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 edge edge of viability. That's right. Know? That's right. So question C. It is impossible to answer this question as mortality for this gestational age is so high that long term outcomes are not readily known. I think when they wrote this question, that probably even potentially seemed like a viable answer. But it's that's not the correct answer. It's not impossible. Um, obviously, mortality uh, numbers are decreasing. And we have a lot more information about long-term outcomes. So that, that it don't, don't trainees, there are answers to these questions for families. Um, A, advances in NICU care have made sensory impairment almost unheard of today. That's not correct. Our uh, extremely low birth weight population have tons of um, problems with sensory impairment. So A is not true. B, early intervention has been shown to reduce functional limitations. So that's true. But they have not been shown really to improve academic achievement for preterm infants. So that's false. C, I told you, is false. D, long-term outcomes depend on the sex, the birth weight, exposure to antenatal corticosteroids. That's a true statement if you've ever Mm -hmm. used the NIH uh, um, calculator. Those are the input uh, criteria. So let's look at E just to be thorough. Some grade of static encephalopathy or cerebral palsy is anticipated in close to 60% of children born at 24 weeks gestation. It's, it's, there's definitely a risk, but it's closer to a quarter of babies than more than half. So I'd say uh, D is the correct answer. That is correct. Um, D is the correct answer. The number of preterm infants born at um, the edge of viability surviving into early childhood is is increasing. Uh, the risk of CP is high in the population, but it doesn't go over 30%. Um, sensory impairment, including vision and hearing impairments, are relatively common, obviously, and not as unheard of, as they mentioned in the answer choice. Mm-hmm. The, the one that was interesting is early intervention, because you see, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought early intervention works. But um, while it provides developmental support to many extremely preterm infants as they grow, it's been shown to increase IQs in this population. However, these gains are not correlated with improved academic achievements yet. So um, 
Long-term outcomes have been associated with the sex of the infant, the birth weight, and the exposure to antenatal steroids, as you mentioned. Okay. I also think in terms of test-taking strategies, like these are long answer choices, and you may not known have known all the answers, and sometimes half the answer is true, but not the other half of the answer. But like, you know you use the calculator. You know what factors you put in. So, I mean, D was definitely the true mm-hmm. answer, even if you didn't know some of the other facts. Okay. Okay. Are you All ready? Right. No. Uh, oh, that's, we're that's, done. We're, I'm, we're just, done. I'm having so much fun. All right, save it for tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.